Welcome everyone to episode 59 of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. You're joined today with myself, Lawrence, and the two Dans, and we're going to get stuck into a Q&A today. And this first one says, thoughts on competing in classic and bodybuilding. Lawrence, considering you're competing this season, I'll, I'll hand this over to you. So is this like competing in like classic physique and open bodybuilding on the same day? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, I think, I mean, me and Jack, we always think about this in a very similar way. It's like pragmatic of when it comes to the organization, they're never going to tell you no, because it's an extra entry fee and it's extra money, which in a sport like natural bodybuilding is, you know, we're never going to say no to an extra entry. That's just the way it is. But I think that, you know, like if we were trying to be a little bit more stringent and have like a clearer delineation between classes, you know, potentially there would be rules around which divisions for the men or the women you could compete in. Like maybe there could be some crossover between men's physique and men's fitness, but maybe you would have to draw the line at some of the more muscular divisions. Because realistically, like in theory, you could enter every single category of the day if you wanted to you you shouldn't do well in all of them if the judges are judging correctly and if there's a, a pretty normal spread of competitors but as far as like open and classic physique I think it is fine which once again comes back to my point about whether or not classic physique is that needed in natural bodybuilding in any way because normally someone who does really well in classic is going to do really well in bodybuilding, assuming they're in, you know, good condition and they have good muscularity. You know, it's, it's realistically, it's just an opportunity for the people to pose differently and for potentially some individuals to be rewarded if they have a, you know, an especially classic physique is, uh, is probably the way I would look at it. I find like with natural bodybuilding, there isn't that much difference between the two. Like what you were saying, Lawrence, like, you know, if you're doing one, well in one, you're probably going to do well in the other one as well. Whereas like we're on the enhanced side, there's there's goddamn 50 to 75 pounds between the people if you were going to take that exact same person and put them in open bodybuilding. So there's a huge difference in terms of body mass where realistically at a natural level, it's very hard to get that much of a difference between the two divisions you'd probably you could nearly weigh the winner of an open height class, a tall class for classic bodybuilding. And I can nearly guarantee that it would, they would be within probably three to five kilos of the uh, bodybuilding open tall class as well. Oh, I mean, like, even if you take the overalls, like I'd be very confident with saying like Ryan Dowling would have been heavier than Jeff easily. Yeah. So yeah, yeah sometimes the classic guys are even bigger. You know what I mean? Maybe they don't have you know, well, as much conditioning, but like, even when we've spoken to Jason in the past, you know, like for the classic guys, they still want them to be peeled to the level of an open bodybuilder. And I, for one, think that there should be a conditioning difference because I think that if you look back to classic physique and you look back to the golden era, people like Franco and Arnold and Frank Zane, like they weren't necessarily getting in the conditioning that is standard nowadays for open men's natural bodybuilding. So I, for one, I think there would be more acceptance from me. Not that I'm like, you know, out here picketing natural bodybuilding shows and like telling them to shut down classic physique. But I think it would make more sense to me to have it in a show if there was a little bit more differentiation, such as potentially less emphasis on the lower body, less emphasis on conditioning, because I think that would be more reflective of golden era bodybuilding, in my opinion. Mm. I do think that if we if we look back at some of the competitors that have done excessively well, extremely well in in the classic physique lineups in previous seasons, I almost feel like there's perhaps more transferability where a classic physique athlete, top tier classic physique athlete, has a better likeliness of doing well in a bodybuilding lineup than perhaps what some of the bodybuilders would do if it was the reverse. Because mm. I do think I that you can still do you know extremely like you can do extremely well in bodybuilding but have a little bit more of a barrel barrel waist you know have a, a little bit more of a thicker waist uh maybe you just don't have the you know the aesthetic the aesthetic uh lat insertions that perhaps a you know classic physique athlete might have you may not be able to maybe maybe that bodybuilder doesn't really have as as broad of a shoulders and, and narrow of a waist so it creates that kind of v taper as well like 
I think there is, and particularly perhaps as as classic physique progresses moving forward, that there will be a greater separation between between the two as categories because not not all bodybuilders can be a great physique athlete, but I think perhaps more classic physique top tier athletes could potentially be good bodybuilders. Um, and I like and you, and you said Lawrence that um, there should be more of di- of a distinction with regards to cross competing across different categories. I think there is. I don't know if it's for all all federations, but I'm pretty sure. For example, like NBA, you know, they don't allow allow men's physique to compete as, as bodybuilders, and and vice versa, because you know they they don't want a bodybuilder in shorts, basically. So, and I think I think yeah, there is some cross there's some transferability, but then there's there's in some cases there's not. So physique. Can compete in men's physique, men's fitness. Um, you know, uh, physique can compete in classic physique. Classic can uh, compete in in men's bodybuilding, but you know, men's fitness can't compete in bodybuilding. Bodybuilding can't compete in men's physique. Uh, classic physique can't compete in. Uh, actually, I think classic physique can compete in fitness, but I I think there probably needs to be more of that set in stone so that you you get individuals that are a little bit more clear cut as to what they're they're striving for in terms of a category yeah because I, I know at the recent nationals the the bloke who won classic overall uh he he uh came second to jeff in bodybuilding yeah and i think what the point you raised dc is quite interesting because like if we look at all the bodybuilding winners can we envision all of them in classic like personally i can't whereas if i look at all the classic winners i i can see most of them in in bodybuilding and doing well in bodybuilding Mm, exactly yeah. right so then it's almost comes comes about an argument of like just your genetic structure right because if yeah. like if size is somewhat similar between classic physique as a natural bodybuilder and you know uh, a bodybuilder it really just comes down to your insertions like how narrow your joints are joint structures so it creates more of a you know an aesthetic look like the broad shoulders the long the shorter torso the longer legs like the you know that kind of look but um, one thing I've I've sort of observed is that I think bodybuilding as a category within the WNBF seems to have a little bit more of a classic spin to it, and obviously they don't have classic physique as a as a category. But if you look at some of the guys that that compete over in like the WNBF worlds, some of these guys are striking you know a, a front double bicep with the with the hip tilt as well, you know, and 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 same in terms of you know you see someone hitting a tricep pose it won't be the traditional bodybuilding you know side tricep it'll be the the angled foot position sort of more so facing the crowd like they'll implement that as a almost like a, a mandatory for their tricep pose so i feel like that's a federation where they've tried to blend classic it's like classic is bodybuilding and bodybuilding is classic we favor people having narrow you know narrow uh waists and and small joints and and that kind of aesthetic look that's what we strive for but it's not marked the same, I guess, when it comes to, to bodybuilding and other natural federations. With the WMBF, I do notice that they do like go towards more like that shape and symmetry. They do have a little bit more of a, a bias, like where in Australia, we're very heavily based on condition. Like you, it's like condition, you've really got to be in shape. Where over there, they take into like the proportions, the symmetry, then obviously the muscularity as well, and then the conditioning. So they're, I feel like they're a little bit more on the symmetry, like what old school bodybuilding used to be in terms of like the genetic structure and how they actually visually look where over here, it's a very, very heavily based on like, you know, you've got to be in shape first. If you didn't have boxed off glutes, like rib cage, like there's no chance where, for example, in the WMBF, I think a couple of years ago, Kendall ended up winning it and he didn't have realistically anywhere near as much boxed off glutes as like, for example, what like the BK boys, do but that being said he has such good symmetry structure and just genetic muscle bellies so and they don't have a classic physique over there as well so i guess like what you said it's like somewhat merged in Mm. and i guess some people just don't enjoy that aspect of uh the 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 artistic side to posing like you know most most a lot of bodybuilders will say i I could never do classic because i just don't have that that sort of flow whereas other people can pick up that sort of artistic side to portraying their physique really, really smoothly, you know? Um, and that obviously creates a big point of delineation between, between the two, but I feel like as a natural, I mean, they're, they're relatively similar, right? It's just slight differences in criteria. That's it. We'll see if uh, they ever separate in, in future years, but 
I'm not sure what they could really do to separate it further other than, as Lawrence said, like potentially differences in, in conditioning, which I think, to be honest, probably already exist because in, in class that you can hide behind the, the shorts, like you don't, you don't need to have boxed off glutes in, in classic unless you're wearing, like I noticed one of the BK boys, he was wearing some much thinner classic trunks. So you could see his glutes, but most of them uh, just wear the standard men's fitness shorts. Mm. Actually, on that question real quick, before I forget, I actually haven't asked this yet. Lawrence, do you have to do an individual routine for the WMBF? Because I yes. know, yeah, uh, that's something a little bit different. I guess you don't mm. really get that with like the ICN where you get to put together like a routine. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. I think I know what I want to do as far as like music and like the general gist. I wouldn't say I've started practicing it per se, but it, it's mainly like the transitions and the general flow of the routine. So I'll probably get Joey to to help me out with that like i've always thought like with the routines you know the common thing is like to get someone you know just go to someone let them do it all for you and then you just practice it but i don't know i think like part of it is like i want to be involved with the process like i want to put it together like it's in a way like partly my expression so yeah i'd like to so you'll be practicing on the podcast anyway yeah exactly yeah i'll be uh playing the track i'll be uh hitting all the poses so yeah, but, but it's interesting because it's like in that instance, I think you would have a pretty boring routine if you didn't include some classic poses. So it's like, that's where I see in like natural bodybuilding, it is so one and the same because like it's pretty rare to watch an open men's bodybuilding routine like at the Olympia in the open class and be like, wow, that was incredible. Because realistically, they're just like lumber around the stage, hit a pose, walk to the other side, hit a pose, clap you know, hype up the crowd, hit a pose and finish with the most muscular. Like it's pretty boring, but you watch a classic routine and it's amazing. So I think that, you know, in order to make the routine a bit more interesting, I would include some more classic elements. Mm. That's sort of, in my opinion, just bodybuilding. I'm just excited to see you somehow entwine the rear glute spread into that mix. Maybe like the finisher as the music just dun, 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 bam, you hit it. 100%. It's yeah, actually pretty cool when you see when you see on the Olympia some of the opens guys that actually try and hit you know various classic classic shots. Um, Sergio Olivia Olivia is one. Yeah, like he's very like he loves that posing. Like he always does like the splits. He always tries. He normally gets actually quite disappointed that the open bodybuilders don't get to put together a nice routine. Yeah, yeah, and some. I mean, some of. I mean, that's an example as well. Like with the opens, that some of them did have more aesthetic physiques. Like you look at um, Cedric McMullen, RIP. Like he, he looked great. Like he had a very you know aesthetic physique on stage. And in fact, I, I remember watching multiple of his um you know posing posing routines at the Olympia, and a lot of them were classic shots that he'd be hitting, like the you know one lat spread and the the bicep shot with the other hand, like he that, that's an example of bringing back that sort of classic vibe to to the open bodybuilding category as well mm. and i mean look at look at kai green right that's an example of someone who definitely didn't pose just like a normal bodybuilder on stage with the the most muscular shot at the end and the waddle from back and forth like lawrence described it <laughs> i don't know i don't know if this is a hot take or an unpopular opinion but like kai green's posing does nothing for me mm. Like, I don't know, man. I'm just like, dude, like it's it's so far left of field that I, I don't even really like it. Like, I think he's just, I think probably by nature, he's just wanting to do something so different. I think it, it almost like leaves the realm of a bodybuilding routine. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm an outlier, but his posing does nothing for me. I don't, yeah, I don't I, enjoy it. I can appreciate his posing, but it. Uh... I feel like I look at it and I'm like, that's not really what how I would want to display my physique on stage. Like I can appreciate his art form and what he does. And it's like a bit of an, you know, you're a bit of an entertainer at that point for, for the posing routine and the pose down, things like that. But yeah, I'm not I'm not at home teaching myself how to do the splits so I can hit these shots on stage. Cool. So we'll move on to the next question. And this one says just our favorite pre-workout. So fairly simple question. DY, what are you running at the moment? I'm running, uh, what's it called? BBD, Big Bad Devastate. It's it's strong. It's good. Uh, no, I don't think that's the name. <laughs> that's my other pre-workout I have in the the back cupboard. What's the uh, you, what's the company? Uh, Inspired, isn't it? 
Um, yep. Lawrence would know about it. What do you think yeah. of it? I don't think I've actually had it, to be fair. I don't ah, know if I've man. actually ever tried that one. It's strong. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's really strong. How much caffeine? Like 300? I think it's 400 a scoop. Jesus. It's, it's yeah, up there, I yeah. it was like 375, like pretty high. Yeah, yeah. and then I mix that with a little bit of... Uh, What's the other one um, from Optimum Nutrition, the EAAs? Yeah. Oh, Amino Energy? Yeah, that's it. A little bit of powder it's of that. Keep it going. Like over 400 milligrams. Yeah. 550 minimum. <laughs> 6 p.m. Crazy. session as well. Yeah. I can barely get away with like 150 milligrams. Otherwise, I just feel anxious. I don't know though. Like even though it says like 375 milligrams of caffeine on there, like I don't really, I don't know if there's actually 375 on that. Like, you know, I'd be having a heart attack if it would be. Mm. Maybe do they have L-theanine or something in there? Cause that might assist with. The you're going to get, you're going to get, make me crack it out. We can read <laughs> it out on the, uh, on the podcast. Well, sometimes, and Jack, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn, but sometimes it'll be like 350, let's say, total caffeine, but it won't all be caffeine anhydrous, which is like the typical fast acting. I think, is it my understanding is like the di-caffeine malate is a little bit more slower absorbing. So it could be total caffeine, but it's not all hitting you as like at once like a train. Potentially, yeah. I, I mean, he's going to check. But I mean, then you can even separate it further into like uh, other stimulants like guarana, mm. like in other energy drinks, for example. Mm. Um, DC, are you still cooking up your like Walter White homemade pre-workout? The DC special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually funny enough, because you guys mentioned like the, what are you showing us there? Sorry, listeners, DC, uh, D, 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 Y is uh, yeah, showing that's, us yeah, that's that's 375. 375 megs. Yeah, wow. We, of just then, I think that's often why I've, I've strayed away from consuming pre, you know, tubbed uh, pre workouts because often, like, some, some of them have like 400 megs of caffeine, and I'm going to be off my chops if I'm, if I'm consuming that much. And I often find that the dosage of like citrulline malate and beta alanine. Uh, you know, often requires like at least a one and a half scoop or sometimes double scoop of these pre-workouts and that's bumping my caffeine up to a ridiculously high amount. So I'd rather just, just buy the amino acids separately and just build my own, build my own cocktail of, of aminos as a pre-workout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see with me though, I, I don't know. I only get my caffeine pretty much. I didn't have coffee or anything like that. So I pretty much like have my whole daily caffeine intake in one sitting, as you can tell. Mm. Mm. You still going with disorder, Lawrence? No, no, I finished that up. I'm on total war at the moment. That's probably my, like my favorite pre-workout to be honest. I always tend to try something new and then go back to that. So, but like total war in America, I think is like, pretty wild but they i believe there is a separate formula for australia where it's a little bit more tame so it's mm. about 250 caffeine which is pretty good for me like 200 to 250 is pretty good for like a big session and then like i will take like a pump pre on like a day where i'm training in the afternoon for example but like like i, I do i do sort of concede your point dc like often most of the clinical ingredients are a bit underdosed but you know, I'm not too proud to admit that part of the reason that I take pre-workout is because I like to sip on a cold flavored beverage before the gym, sort of lean into that placebo effect. Um, I'm more than happy to admit that's part of the reason. And like, you know, fortunately I can get my supplements a little bit cheaper. So it's, it's not as much of like a financial strain, but um, yeah, total war. And then the non stim as well from Redcon, which is called big noise. I'm going, going that at the moment. Mm, the, the I find actually certainly that... starts to taste better as prep goes on. That's for sure. Mm, yeah. For sure. Uh, what I have used before is the the non-stim pre from Bulk Nutrients. This is actually not bad. Like one and a half scoop of that, and you're pretty much getting a good dosage of citrulline, uh, creatine. Not that that's necessary as a pre-workout necessarily, but uh, and also better better alanine in like a good dosage as well. And then I I consume coffee throughout the day, so that's my that's my caffeine there i might take a no dose or something like that instead what's like your do you have like a caffeine cut off like where you won't have any more caffeine for the day usually around midday i'll try and cut the caffeine off by then yeah i try i, I aim for midday as well mm. generally that is the case 
I find in prep though, midday, like you could have a coffee at four o'clock and it's not doing much for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. But I think in the past, like I've, I've relied, like I remember in my 2018 prep, like would literally have like a long black after dinner just to have something sit in my stomach. And I was like, well, that's probably not a good idea. So yeah, I do. I do aim for the midday cutoff, which is good because my sleep's probably the best it's ever been the last few months. So um, trying to keep it at one coffee a day. But if someone offers me one at work, I will oblige. Tracked, of course. What? What? <laughs> I got to track those. Yeah, yeah, the full cream milk fucking mochas oh, that you have every day. I thought but... my um triple caramel backflip macchiato was just <laughs> coffee. I've just been putting it down as a long black. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I remember Lawrence is like Joey a skinny cat kind of guy. Yeah. Mate, uh, almond flat white. That's my order yeah. if you're ever interested. But I remember asking Joey when I was like first starting tracking, I was like, dude, like I'm trying to scan this like coffee barcode and it's not coming up with anything. Like, how do I track this? And he was like, oh, dude, like if you're just having a long black, it's nothing in it. So don't worry. I think it's like 0.3 grams of a protein and like 300 mils. <laughs> it's not Wait, what? not much at all. <laughs> I've been tracking that wrong. Yeah, there's, oh, a, nut, there's a nut tab entry for it, mate. Get on it. Dude, my kidneys are going to fail. That's unaccounted protein. Mm. Get me on dialysis immediately. I reckon Jax has to be a homemade pre-workout though. Surely, isn't it? Nah, VPA. Of course, yeah. Actually, this is a good, <laughs> good question. Do you guys track your the aminos you take? Like if you're you know taking five grams of creatine or something like that, which technically you could say is a protein, are you tracking that towards your daily protein? No, I don't. Neither do I. I don't, I don't think it, I, I actually well. don't think it's a good yeah. idea because it's not a complete protein, right? So as long as that, as long as you're like keeping that as a consistent variable every day, you're, you're you know taking five grams a day, whatever it may be, then that's like a constant variable and that's not being adjusted. So I almost think you'd probably be better off to not track the like that as an example because then that might actually take away from the you know diversity of other aminos that you'll be getting through hitting your protein target via you know, more HPV style protein. Hmm. I won't track like pretty much what you've said, like creatine. Um, and in the off season, if I have like the amino energy when I'm training, I won't. But in prep, if I'm having like EAAs in my intra-workout shake, for example, like 10 grams of EAAs, I'll uh, track those. But not hmm. so much in the off season because it's just so the, the flavored water. Is that is that what you're, yeah. that's what you're saying basically? Oh yeah, pink, okay. Pink yeah, candy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, Jack, you say you don't track the fish oils? No, I don't personally, just because they yeah. stay consistent. Yeah, I, I used to track them, but then it was actually in the transfer over from MyFitnessPal to MacroFactor, I fell out of the habit of, of tracking the fish oils. And then I like literally, like genuinely like 15, well, 15 weeks out, I was like, oh yeah, I haven't been tracking the fish oils for like at all during prep. But then I was like, I have the same you know, whatever each day. So it really is not going to matter. That's probably why I'm like 10 weeks behind to be fair. How many grams of fat is in a fish oil tablet? I've actually never even looked into it. I reckon, I think all of like, previous, usually, like two or three for all of them. Well, there's, it depends how many milligrams. Typically there are a thousand milligrams, which is one gram of fat. So. Uh, yeah. mm. I thought that was a, like, a, <laughs> I thought you were joking, D.Y. <laughs> Dude, I've never, I've never even looked into the fish oil. So I was like, oh, I just take, two a day so i'm just like incredible. yeah 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 well i mean they're they're yeah they're a thousand milligram capsules and it's uh, yeah. for sure right so it's uh, gram <laughs> yeah no I, i've never i've never even looked on. i just turned on the back label and says hey take two to four a day i go sweet two it is done you didn't I go mean, to uni that, dc that, that being said some of them do contain some you can get the larger ones right which are double two grams that make me go back to the sub cupboard Let's see how many milligrams I'm running. This is the sup special. Go get him. Is he actually getting it? <laughs> He's actually getting him. All right. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's always interesting, like, those little things. Because, like, in theory, you know, you could have, a, like, let's say, like, a chocolate bar. If you ate it every single day of prep, like, obviously, your overall calories would, would come into it. But, like, if it was a tiny snack like that, you probably could have it the whole way through. If you're having it every day, 2,000 right? milligrams. Yeah. I don't muck around. Yeah, that's what you got the super strength. Yeah. Ah. Wild fish as well. So it really does mm. make a difference. Yeah, yeah, mine yeah. are super domesticated. <laughs> it's not like the John, John West ad where you're out there just fighting the bear for the fish. 
That's how they get mine, apparently. Yeah, sure. That's why I picture Jack out there fighting the fish every day. Yeah, especially while I was in the US. Mm. Have you fished since being back? We went once, except my my bait pump. I think I'd left it too long while I was away, and like the seal on it broke, so I needed to get that replaced. But we'll be out there this Saturday if you want to join. Yeah, mate, you'd be fiending for it, eh? He, he's just like scratching, like, oh, I got a, got a fish. We're looking forward to it, to put it lightly. Apparently. So, this next question says, what's on interstate competitors competing in another state and potentially taking someone's spot from their home state? So I'll probably decipher that a little bit. So essentially, yeah, let's who say- wrote that? South- <laughs> I'm not sure. This is not the question asker, the, by the, the person way. This in is the idiot that typed it into like... the chat. And DY is having a shocker today. Good grief. <laughs> Don't point the finger at me. So basically, let's say a New South Wales competitor comes to uh, Queensland and... <laughs> <laughs> they this take is so the spot, good. They take the spot of someone's uh, nationals placing essentially. So they qualify for nationals above a Queensland competitor. Um, so, yeah, I don't think this has happened to any of us before. Mm, but, but I guess this is almost similar to like if someone, let's say someone took out uh, a first place in their overall line lineup at Queensland, but then never actually went to nationals, which is pretty common. Like some people don't, don't choose to go to nationals after. Mm. Uh, but I've not heard of like the competitor below that person who came sixth, maybe who's then been accepted to go to nationals. So, yeah, I've never I, heard of a sixth place person in for in the first place be like, oh, I wish I was so close to getting into nationals, I got sixth instead of fifth. Like, I mean, maybe people do that, but mm. I think one message to Jason and he would be like, yep, yeah, sure, you're you're going to nationals. I don't mean to be harsh as well, but I think if you're really not placing in a top five in an open div, nationals not might not be the call that season. Like you'd need to be quite off to probably not place top five in an open div. Not only that, like, you know, if you're going to nationals, you know exactly what's there. Everyone there has either placed, they're gunning for a pro card and they've placed the top five. So unless you were really, really off, which I know they do give exemption. So if you were to go to the president of your state or whatever it might be, and then maybe ask, you'd be able to get one there anyway. But chances are, if you're probably placing outside the top five, you're probably not going to be doing that well at nationals anyway. Not good enough to crack the top three. Yeah. I mean, a, a better peak week, like some extra water restriction and you've gone from six to first. Mm. Yeah. Tilapia in there as well. Thin the skin and you're on. Mm. What is it? A shot, a shot of vodka like the night before or something like that. Mm. Thin the skin out. Isn't that right? Come in a little bit tighter. Yeah. Not to mention the extra muscle as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so I, I guess this, to summarize that answer, like I don't think you really need to worry. If you truly want to go to nationals, like hit DC up and he'll get you there. So um, hit, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can be that crosstalk for sure. All right, all right. Okay, so is the crossbody pull down the new iliac pull down? Lawrence, I'll let you kind of describe what the crossbody pull down is first. Mm. So this I actually saw, well, I know Kasim has once again been a big proponent of it, but I actually didn't try this until, when was it? Yeah, it was actually Mike Chalice. He's like the physio for Revive Stronger. And he was doing this on the same machine that I have in my gym, which is like the hammer strength, sort of unilateral high row. You're sort of like pulling down on an angle and essentially, instead of doing it like that, you sit 90 degrees to the seat and, you know, you have your arm a little bit more, well, a lot more adducted across the front of your body. And then you sort of perform that same row or a lat pull down type movement that you would where you're trying to drive the hand to the pocket, trying to drive the elbow downwards, sort of as you would with any sort of lat pull down. Um, but the idea is that because you can lengthen the lats a little bit more, by reaching across and rounding your rib cage, you know, that's sort of Kasim's rationale for that one. I would say it's it's not necessarily the equivalent of an iliac pulldown because I think the whole notion of the iliac pulldown is to target the iliac fibers of the lat, whereas this is more so to just further lengthen the lat. So it's probably more a case of extra range of motion rather than a different area of the lats. 
Um, but you know, as far as like gimmick, uh, you know, the gimmick meter, it probably is in a, a similar realm. Like if you I think it might even be higher than the iliac in terms of gimmickness, because like potentially, yeah, like, sideways, you got to put your own D handle on there. Yeah, in my case, you're putting some booty bands around the the weight mm. staff. Yeah, because Jack is just unbelievably strong. He literally has to change every piece of equipment just yep. to make yep. it six plates on it. Plus, yeah, the bands. it's one of those things where you like... go for a three week holiday in Kuwait, come back yeah, next thing, every right. machine's maxed out. Yeah, suspicious. It's a tough life, but it's like you know, if you're within the first three years of your training career, do you need to be doing something like this? No. If you're fairly advanced and you're looking for a bit of variety, do I still think it's a viable exercise? Yeah, I think it's completely fine. Um, I just think you need to consider your circumstances and and choose your battles when it comes to this sort of exercise selection. But I, I like it. I think it feels good. I think it's a slightly novel stimulus. You know, the gym where I do that exercise is somewhat limited on kit. So I do find that I need to vary things up a little bit more to to get what I want. I might actually disagree with you there on a point, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Well, wait. On. Firstly, DY is shaking his head. What are you talking about, DY? What do you mean, limited kit? No, this Speaking... is club line. Oh, what? I thought you were what saying powerhouse. powerhouse. I was like, I swear we've got the most kit there ever is. There's no no gym bigger. Just short a couple pieces, mate. Then it'd be perfect. <laughs> Maybe if we got a prime row there, I'm sure mm. we would probably have everything covered. But I think, yeah. I think other than that. Yeah. No. Oh, what were you going to say, Jack? I guess like on the topic of, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. It's just more a, um, a discussion. Like you mentioned that it's okay. Should someone in their first like three years of, be in tra of training be doing it? Maybe not. But then if you're truly trying to bias the laps, then is it often beginners will be doing just a standard like overhand grip lap pull down. Like, wouldn't you say that something like a cross body pull down would genuinely be better for laps than something like that? Yeah. But I think if we were, because I know how much you you hate the uh, the terrors pull down. No, I'm just I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I'm actually but, is that I'm actually doing it in, in my program. Right? Yeah, no, I I know that you do like it. But if okay, if we're thinking that like okay, the most standard lat exercise for like the general population is going to be a standard pronated lat pull down. Maybe it's not the best exercise for targeting lats. It's like okay, fair enough. But I think you could get a much better trade off by just doing a single arm D handle lat pull down where you can focus a little bit more on the lat. And if I was working with someone who was a beginner, I'd be much more inclined to get them to do that rather than a cross-body lat pull-down. Yeah. Yeah, when you put it like, when you compare it to the standard D-handle single-arm lat pull-down, yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm really interested in a study coming out from Chris Barakat. He's working on it at the moment and they're literally just looking at hypertrophy of the lats and different movements to suit it. I, I really... I'm intrigued to see how that goes because I think it's an area that like there's so many different movements. So it'd be really interesting to see like, are there certain planes that are going to hypertrophy certain areas in different ways? Or is it just like everything else in bodybuilding research where at the end of the paper, they're like, oh yeah, small difference. Probably doesn't matter. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure you guys saw the recent uh, research released by Brett Contreras about glutes, the the back squat versus the hip thrust. And basically it was very similar across the board. Well, essentially like the squat one in more things than the hip thrust, like more quad development. Um, and I can't remember all the factors. So I put myself on the spot, but essentially there was not much difference at all between the, uh, the squat and the hip thrust for glute development. Mm, Cause I think you essentially have like some individuals who are in that camp of like, you know, if you don't, if you don't hip thrust, your glutes will, will severely be, be lacking. And then there's those people who are like, you don't need to hip thrust. All you need to do is squat to build, build your glutes. And I guess like, like you said, Lawrence, where the, the, the result mostly comes out and it's like, well, you know, a little bit of difference there, but context specific, right? So it's like, I think some of the findings there were that perhaps something like a hip thrust might, you, you might be able to actually produce more or perform more volume with it as a movement to build the glutes because it's less fatiguing than perhaps something like a heavy squat pattern. Therefore there's application of it within a program, but mm. then that's not to say that, you know, you should then just hit thrust and there's still utility of, of, of a squat pattern as well. And then that whole concept regards to squat would be perhaps loading the glutes within a little bit more of a, 
a stretch position through hip flexion. But then you look at something like a squat pattern and the glutes uh, are, not, are not really at much of a biomechanical advantage uh, at, at sort of peak hip flexion. Like the adductors are actually quite a strong hip extensor towards the, 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 the hole of a squat and through the initial aspects of bouncing out of the hole. So, you know, is there decreased tension on the glutes in that stretch position perhaps? Like it's, you know, I think this is why some, we can truly draw conclusions from this that realistically i guess to create great great glute development like it's probably built through a vast majority of exercises and i think that's almost true for like most most movements right you want to build the pecs you probably need to include uh various angles you know biasing the incline the the horizontal perhaps a bit decline work depending on how much you, you arch your your spine in a press uh, same in terms of the back like multiple angles you know glute development let's let's hit it through a few different way exercises as well uh i think it's great research kind of point pinpoints that often the answer is in the gray and there's not so much a, a black and white, you know, at the end of this. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And like, just looking at the, I've got the data up now from Menno. He did a, a summarization. Basically the, the squats were higher in hamstrings, quads, adductor, pretty much the same in glute uh, medius and minimus. And then glute max was only a 1% difference, like hip thrust 1% higher. So pretty much the same when it comes to glutes that being said i realistically wouldn't like even though the comparisons are there like the squat i would pretty if i went for all over lower body development i would always rather a squat than i would a glute thrust the only reason i'm probably putting a glute thrust in a program is because i want more like direct work to the glutes so even though like you know you can see that the squat has shows so much more in like all these other ones like quad adductor hamstring and so on like that like, you know, I think the biggest takeaway from that study is that you can get damn good glutes from, you know, or similar pretty much like from glute thrust compared to squats. And I think that's what a lot of people wanted to see. Mm. What I actually find really interesting is looking at like the the benefits of performing a hip thrust and then looking at the different subdivisions of the glutes as well and how like there seemed to be similar growth amongst even sort of the more upper fibers, which you would you would think would be better biased through like hip abduction, uh, for example, like the glute med and, and those upper glute max fibers. Uh, and so I think you could probably then get a few coaches who are like, well, then you never need to do abduction work for the glutes. And I th again, I think that's like taking one concept and running with it and not considering, considering all variables because again, performing something like an abduction may not be as fatiguing as having to add more hip thrust volume to achieve more no glute bias so i think like at the end of the day all of these exercises are just tools in the tool belt and we basically like rotate between these tools you know when when it's necessary and i always sort of analogize it with like a you know a builder he might have one specific he or she might have one specific tool that they utilize for majority of the time but it doesn't mean they throw out all the other tools in the tool belt because like each has a specific uh purpose and a specific um place in which it's required and can be used rookie boys yeah, was muted, muted. <laughs> i was just saying yes the in intricacies of of programming jack were they trained the people in that study uh i'd have to look which mm. i don't but that's know. another thing to consider think, it's like maybe non, i think they were non-trained so that's like another like another caveat hey because it's like well you get a non-trained individual and you can essentially hypertrophy everything like there's studies to show that like you can literally build muscle from walking if you're sedentary enough so you know maybe it's the sort of case where when you're starting out you know don't fret it too much have a well-balanced program you know you can probably squat and get the majority of gains for your lower body but if you're an advanced physique athlete and you're wanting to specifically target the glutes, for example, maybe that's when it is a little bit more reasonable to include slightly more specificity from an exercise selection standpoint. So yeah, there's always caveats. They were untrained. And the reason why they said is because they wanted to avoid biasing the results based on previous experience with each lift, which I mean is, is somewhat fair. Like yeah. if someone... Yeah, because that's an interesting piece. Because like, what if I, you know, I undertook the study, but I had my own pre preconceptions with regards to, like, I hate squats. I don't like push, you know, performing them. Therefore, like, I'm probably just not going to put much effort into this. I'm not really going to push it. Like, we know mindset plays such an important role, like, on your performance in training. So I might, I might like subconsciously train a lot harder doing my hip thrust because I just love that movement. And then they get me squatting, and I'm like, meh. Like, it's yeah, I'm pushing hard, but like, I'm not really 
like digging that hard in this set, like that could be your own personal bias. Mm. But then it obviously leaves out trained individuals from, from a concept, right, in terms of a study. So then we've got to kind of extrapolate that data and try and apply it somewhat to a different populace, which we, as we know, can, can, can warp or change the results. Cool. Well, back to competing. This one says, is it okay to do a season back-to-back? I don't want to build for another two years. What do you think about that, DY? I think you've got to accept a few things if you are going to do a back-to-back season, which I don't recommend. One, you're going to need to be pretty damn on point with your diet. Like, And they're you're a bigger gonna... competitor, I, should, I would say that. Yeah, it, it's going to be extremely hard because by the time you have just recovered, probably not even fully recovered from the dieting state if you're extremely lean and then you're going to go straight back into it again, it can cause a lot of issues there. You've also got to understand that you're going to make no progress. To be honest, you could probably even look worse and there's probably a higher chance of it. Like if you're already skinned out of your mind for the first show, there's probably going to be only uh, complications. Like, you know, you might finally recover and then you're straight back into the diet. You know, you got to push hard again to then get back into that condition. So there's going to be no progress made within that phase because there is no time to make the progress. Um, The only thing you might be able to improve on is maybe get leaner. Maybe in the first show, you came somewhat off there was a little bit of room to go there in terms of conditioning. So, you know, maybe you might've wanted to go the second time knowing that you had it in you to actually go deeper. Sure. I could understand that, but I think in terms of lean mass, you're pretty much going to put on nothing. Um, You're going to have to be very on point with your diet. Like you realistically will only probably have like probably 30 weeks between the shows, depending on what season you do could even be less. Maybe it could be like 24 to 25. And then by the time you recovered eight to 10 weeks of that, you know, you're straight back into the diet again and you're going to have to push hard if you're a figure competitor. So it's one of those ones that I, I wouldn't say for figure or bodybuilding. I think those two are pretty much nearly out. I reckon you'd be best off at least, at least waiting a year between shows. Yeah. Mm. I don't think there's too much more to say than that, but yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe if like... you're a, an, a, like a more mature athlete, um, like later in their career and, and therefore you, you just don't really want to have to take a few years off between seasons. It might be more viable to compete more, more regularly but yeah i think dy you pretty much hit it on the head there like as a natural athlete you're probably not going to make substantial growth between seasons if you're just back to back so you kind of need to accept that perhaps the degree of muscularity that you have at this point is is going to be the same in the next season so and if that's a, a point of feedback where the judges are like hey you needed to grow more then you're sort of shortchanging yourself a little bit the only time i could probably ever see it happening is maybe it feels like an ICN bikini competitor, they're already very naturally lean and, you know, they only needed to make some slight improvements and that was just off an overall or a pro card or something like that where the conditioning requirements aren't that crazy compared to what it would be for a figure. But for a figure, I would always probably say at least a year. And even that's quite short in terms of our preps. Like I know DC is probably not going to compete for three years in between shows. Lawrence and Jack have at least done 2.5 years in between shows. I'm pretty much the same. Three and a half, mate. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. You know, probably going to be five by the time we see him, but we'll never know. Could be a decade. Keep me guessing. Wouldn't count me out. I, I, the only question I'd ask is like, why are you bodybuilding? Are you bodybuilding to compete? um, Or are you bodybuilding because you enjoy training and you enjoy everything that comes with it? And I think if you're bodybuilding purely to compete, like that's, not necessarily a bad thing, but maybe it's not coming from as healthy of a position compared to just enjoying every aspect that comes with bodybuilding. Um, yeah, so we'll move on to the next question and I think we'll, we'll finish on two more. So the second last one says, this is more so for Lawrence, but some of your weirdest food combinations during prep. I'm assuming that you haven't really done anything weird quite yet. Nah, it's all been pretty standard, mate. Like. I've actually, I'm low-key chuffed with myself, to be honest. Like, I've really haven't included much in the way of diet stuff at this point. Like, and I'm almost, like, wondering if I will at all. Like, for me, the the biggest, like, thing during prep is, like, at some point, I'll trade out, like, rice. Because my final meal of the day is always the same. It'll be some sort of meat, normally kangaroo, my vegetables for the day, which is generally, like, 150 of three different types of veg so like 450 veg and then rice as my carb source and then in past preps i've always then transitioned that over to potato because it's just a little bit more satiating 
And even at like 10 and a bit weeks out, like I'm still having my rice. It's not a lot of rice, but I'm still having it. Like a, How many grams raw weight? Generally between like 40 and 60. Yeah, it's um, like a tablespoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a lot, but it's almost, it's more like mental for me where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm still having the rice. Like I'm not needing the potato. And like part of me is wondering like, I mean, what's like at the end of the day, maybe if I keep going like this, I might just, you know, stick with my pitiful amount of rice. And yeah, it doesn't look super interesting, but you know, you get to that prep where nothing works. So like, yes, if I feel like I do need to, you know, work at satiation a bit more, like I will, but you know, as the more I go on and the, how I have felt that I haven't needed it, I almost wonder if it's like something I'll just save for the very, very end. Cause I think in preps gone past, I'd be pretty confident to say I would have been at that point already. And I just haven't felt the need. And I think that removing like the treats and, you know, those little things that keep you feeling like you're getting a little bit of a sweet fix here and there. I think like just omitting that stuff entirely has been very, very helpful. Like I really haven't felt much in the way of cravings or food focus or hunger um, mm. at all really up until this point, which is good. Mm. I would say that that's a big part of like, maturing as a as a competitor mm. don't you think and learning between your seasons because i think most most athletes can probably attribute their maybe their first or, or second season uh re- resulting in a lot of perhaps more food focus than than what should have been there and and it might have just been exacerbated from what what sort of behaviors the individual was was uh you know pursuing like looking at all the foods through instagram and hyper-focusing on that sort of stuff and trying to rotate between foods too often that are really highly palatable. Therefore, you know, creating that need to, to, to consume these things on the regular. Uh, and, and like the post you just put out recently, like you need to kind of lean into that discomfort. And I think it, it's easy not, it's easier said than done just to say that to someone and just be like, hey, just be uncomfortable. But because yeah. like, it, in, it's, it's not really, you know, I understand that it's, that's not really a strategic, you know, you can't, like, you can't come away with a strategy on how to do that, right? But I think, I, I think time spent in the diet condition, you, you learn how to do that over time. Like you can't, we can't just say to a first time competitor, hey, embrace this stuff. Like, yes, you, you, you do kind of say that in a way, but it's like, you also nurture the fact that this you know you will get more acclimated to how to deal with this over time and i think a lot of competitors just sort of slowly learn that as they move through their preps and i do think that perhaps there's even trial and error from from regards to making a couple of mistakes in prep like you, you make a mistake where you volumize with a certain vegetable and and then the next day your gastrointestinal tract is absolutely upset and you're like ah, okay maybe that's not the best thing to try and implement. Maybe I need to rotate back to what I was eating beforehand. And again, there's that kind of trial and error that you you kind of learn through the course of your preps. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done anything like a prep in since 2021, but even I've done the two mini cuts and I think I can resonate with you like not switching out the rice because it's almost like you're challenging yourself to like, okay, how long can I keep this in? Like it's small volume, Let's see how long I can last until I switch it out. What yeah. do we think, boys? What at what point in terms of like what r- raw weight? What time? When are we jettisoning the rice? Six do grams. I go down to twenty grams? I took it the whole way through prep. I got it to thirty grams at the end. Still kept it in. Mm. So that's we'll the challenge. 15. <laughs> it takes like two you'll seconds. You'll be counting out the rice granules at that point. Yeah, 100%. But no, generally, like, if I can do that, I will, because, like, the food focus is the lowest it's ever been, because and I'm just like, you, you just, looking back on preps, you know that at some point, it doesn't matter. So, like, I always, like, joke with people, at the end of prep, you're, you're just thinking, because either way, you're going to be hungry, but it's just, you decide how bloated you want to be, essentially. Yeah. Um, do you so want to be sitting there with, like, three Pepsi Maxes and 800 grams of low spud light potatoes deep um, along with your normal veg or do you just want to be like oh you know what man i'm hungry but at least i don't feel like i'm about to explode because then that, that has application to like your posing and i mean i would even argue your training as well no one wants to rock up to a training session feeling bloated uncomfortable and and then they've got hip thrust or something like that to do right where that's not going to feel very comfortable at all and it's funny because you get to that point in prep and they're pretty much similar hunger levels 
between the two. There's there's not much saving them. As much volume as you want to have. I remember one time I got given a refeed and I had 800 grams of Spud Light and one meal. I tell you, I finished that meal and I was hungry within 35 minutes. Like it, it didn't help. And I was so bloated. It was crazy. So it's like, regardless, you're still going to have the exact same hunger levels, no matter how much Spud Light, like, you know, salad and all that you'll have. Mm. Yeah. Lawrence, have you noticed that you got into that stage in prep where you're like licking plates yet? Yeah. The other <laughs> night I was like, cause, and that's the thing, like I'm not making it out. Like I'm feeling no dieting symptoms. Like I'm certainly getting to the stage where like there's some diety stuff like you know it, it, you're starting to do stuff that you wouldn't do in the off season like because i'll normally have like a protein shake or something like that before bed and i'm like holding it there and holding it there to get that last little drop whereas normally in the off season i'm like because like normally it's like, you're not you haven't done like a protein mousse or anything well, that's another thing. I was like, oh, like maybe eventually I'll train, I'll trade the shake out for like a protein custard. And but then once again, I'm like, is that just another thing that will, you know, I'll become a little bit more food focused because I'll be like all day I'll be looking forward to this like protein custard. Like it's worth trialing and, and seeing how it goes. But yeah, there's little things like, you know, licking the plates a bit more. Are you um, using a small spoon, yeah. Yeah, I've gone the smaller spoon with the cream of rice now. Uh, yeah toothpick for the dinner all the standard stuff this man's cracked out all the dieting hacks already look at him he's got the small spoon he's licking the plate like getting every <laughs> drop out of his protein shake god damn he's still got 20 weeks left man keep it calm <laughs> xanthan gum in my pre yeah thick. so you're having the cognac noodles as well mid-training session you bought out the little porter stove <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice blood glucose spike from those. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, I think we'll actually finish up here. We've been going for about an hour. Um, I think we'll save those other ones for next week. Uh, but thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't hesitate to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we'll catch everyone next week. <laughs>